the structure of political opportunity is actually Hello and welcome back to the New Pathways Labs podcast. I am J.V. Hampton Van Sant and I'm here to welcome you back um, and to continue these lovely conversations that we had. So for today, we have the lab that occurred on Saturday, uh, May 23rd, called Investing in Our Future. Our presenters for this conversation were Erica Allison, Josie Green, 2DB Scott, Tracy Gray, and Alexandra Dest. They were moderated, as always, by Ashante Renee and sort of co-led by Gwendolyn Hampton Van Sant. We hope you enjoy this episode. Stay safe out there. Right now, we're going to have people um, talk for their five minutes each. Um, so we're going to start with our new Pathways Talk presenter video that you've seen, which is Alexandra. Tracy's recorded, but it's not quite ready yet. But Alexandra, if you'll kick us off for five minutes, and Danye will text you privately when you have a minute left. And then um, when that minute's up, she'll let you know. And if you don't give up then, then we start dancing and making noise. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So Alex, you're oh, thank you. Okay, so um, where do you want me to start? What I see happening on the landscape, or did everybody see the video already? Then Gwendolyn, that was everyone's homework. Grab to watch. Oh, that was your homework. Okay, so you could see that I'm very passionate about change in capital management. So, from my perspective, I see an opportunity here with COVID. And, um, you know, I, as I said in the video, I've been in the industry for 33 years, including working on Wall Street, uh, being an executive at a larger bank as a chief investment officer, and then here in my own company. And here we're, we're, we're omni-focused on socially responsible investments, both in the private and public sector. Um, and what I see happening today, what I saw happen over so many years, and my biggest concern here coming out of COVID is the impact that has been made on the smaller investments. So you see some of the micro investments in the inner city communities, which we also invest in through CNO, if any of you are familiar with that um, particular company. Um, we are concerned about the net effect of what's going to happen to these smaller businesses. So we're really working to shine a light on small businesses, even though we manage portfolios of all different sizes that go into all different types of companies. Um, so from my perspective, this is our opportunity to show up. Now, this company one of our focuses here is we admittedly are invested in some of the, the, because we have to be in some publicly traded companies because we don't have accredited investors, all of them. Um, one of the things we do is exert some of our power authority as a shareholder on companies to begin to morph into something that we call, um, you know, heart-centered leadership. It's how I evolved as a person here within this industry 
Um, one of the things from our perspective, we believe that change starts from within the inner landscape of the person. So in, it starts inside of me. So as a leader, I used to be very afraid of rejection. And I see how that played out for me in boardrooms, in boardrooms, because I was in uh, two large companies and I was a member of senior management and would have to be on a board. So I would see myself in executive management, not necessarily acting congruent with what my truth was because of my own fear of rejection that I didn't even know was sitting inside of me. Okay. So one of the things that we're pushing, so I thought, okay, when I embarked on opening this company, I said, I want to bring spirituality to capitalism. And everybody thought I was high as a kite. Well, to me, what that means is connection. That means showing up authentically. It means understanding our interconnectivity to all that is, to each other, to the, to the planet, to everything. And to understand that we're here for a higher purpose, our higher purpose of our own self-love, our own self-development, so to speak. So I said, if I'm going to set out doing this, then I'm certainly going to set out focusing on becoming that type of leader. So I did, and I have been, and I continue to move forward with my own personal development. So one of the things we do here, actually, is begin to challenge the status quo at some of these companies. And I can give some examples of some letters that we sent to management teams where they weren't necessarily acting in congruency with what I thought the higher purpose was of the company itself, but also them. And also here, we're appealing to the fact that we, you know, when people say, oh, it's a business decision, well, that's just really not good enough anymore. And when um, about eight years ago, when companies were given the same constitutional rights as human beings, we said, well, you need to start acting as a human being then. And when I said that, I thought to myself, well, sometimes human beings don't really necessarily act really well either. <laughs> so that's when I realized it was about this deeper dive inside. So this is what we do through letter writing, through blogs to actually challenge management. And now we're stepping up the pace because now we say power is consolidating and the potential for power to consolidate in this situation today is extreme. And can these small businesses come back? This really has us extremely concerned. So we've been focusing now on saying, all right, it's time to really open up to the truth of who you really are. Ooh, my one minute is coming here. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so this is our focus here. And I do think this is our greatest opportunity right now to, to show us we have a tremendous amount of power. Um, so anyway, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, Tudy, you're up next. Good to go here. <laughs> Great. Well, philanthropy is the love of humankind, not mankind. Uh, my life's work has been oriented towards uplifting women in sports, politics, leadership, and philanthropy. Uh, I seek to engage more people in valuing women as leaders, healers, and agents of change. And today, more than ever, we need to do that. Um, I seek to ignite more passion and commitment to investing in women of color and all women. 
I believe and research has shown that when we invest in women, women invest in themselves, their families and communities. Uh, during this time of COVID and global pandemic, women are frontline workers, healthcare warriors, caregivers inside their homes, where we all pray they're safe from violence. Now more than ever, we need to invest in women of color and all women. This time of reflection and disruption has offered a window for people to assess whether their values are reflected with the choices they make with their money. Uh, now it's the time for us to use our entire set of resources, our voice, our networks, our time, and our entire purse or wallet for change. That is why I get to do in my everyday work. I'm quite honored to do that work. Um, I think that for us to see the change we want to see in the world, my belief is that we need, as women, need to feel more comfortable with money and power. And this starts with sharing our money stories. When Christian McEwen inter interviewed me for her stage play, Legal Tender, it was about stories of women and money. She asked me what class I grew up in. I shared that I was born into the class of hard knocks, um, but now I'm in the class of elegance. And some people call the class of hard knocks working poor. I pre prefer to use the more descriptive name. You know, one has multiple daily challenges and limits versus the other, which has an overabundance of choices. Hard knocks and comfort. Uh, the Women's Philanthropic Institute research has shown that courage, control, and confidence are what women need to be bolder with our money. Courage to take risks and try new things, confidence to speak up about how we use our money, and feeling more comfortable being in control of our money. And there's been studies that show that 56% of single women and 55% of divorced women worry about becoming a bag lady. And this fear of being a bag lady persists even amongst 46% of women of influence defined in the, by the research as having a postgraduate degree, having income greater than 57,000 or a title of senior uh, VP or higher. Um, and that would be someone like myself. So um, the good news is that in this study that once we start taking control of our money, our quality of life improves. In 2015, I was sort of shocked, you know, working in women's philanthropy and funding for women um, you know, a million dollar gift was a lot. So my mind wasn't sort of expanded into the billions. And I appreciate people who have lived in that world longer than I have. Uh, so I learned that 444 billion was spent on coffee mugs and sweaters during holiday season. And 358 billion was the amount annually in the US given to help humankind for philanthropy. And so Meanwhile, I knew that only 5% of that money was going to women and girls. And that had been the same place it had been for five years. Today, it's 1.6. So I knew I needed to find bigger, bolder strategies if I was going to mobilize money and investing for women. So I started thinking about the 50 trillion that was in the markets and thinking if we could influence maybe 1% of that, we'd be doing a hell of a lot more than philanthropy was. Um, so gender lens investing, which has many definitions, but I think of it as sort of innovative and intentional investments towards gender equity and directly for women. Um, meanwhile, I came in interested in this and I was, I had unexpectedly had open heart surgery. Um, my mortality and vitality kicked in even more. My redheaded, passionate spirit uh, said I had even more drive to shift the paradigm of patriarchy, especially inside philanthropy and, and money. 
Um, since then, I've written a couple of guides, uh, one on money, gender, and power, which is a guide to giving with the gender lens. Uh, it was written with Slingshot for the Jewish community, and we're offering virtual trainings on this work. Um, about to come out is a second guide I wrote with Tides, Money Moves That Matter, which is all around gender lens investing, which has a lot of case studies and um, examples for people to take action. Um, and last year, my firm, Change Maker Strategies, we produced the event Women and Money, and I'm thrilled to see Tracy, who I got to co-facilitate with, and the move, uh, Making Money Moves That Matter, we gathered really to sort of experiment with new practices and in investing with a gender, racial, and economic justice lens. Um, our goals were bold and I think are relevant for this time, um, move money, change systems, and build momentum and accountability. Um, I was proud, you know, Gwendolyn and I have had the privilege of doing many gigs together on strategic plans for political parity and organizations that are working on the front lines of gender equity. Um, you know, witnessing her in action, as many of you have, is, is quite an honor. Uh, her serene comportment and how she delivers uh, counsel and wisdom is, is, is fun, to, fun to have a front row seat at. So at the event, um, Gwendolyn at this event in Austin, she was our accountability lead. And, you know, we had these commercials where, you know, people got to ask whatever questions they had on gender identity, gender expression, structural discrimination in finance, and uh, Gwendolyn uh, educated. And I've always wanted her platform, you know, years ago, I wanted to see her have more space and um, more time to kind of develop what could be. And uh, with her permission, I haven't really talked about this much, but that year, gosh, I think it was like 2017, 2018, it's a blur. Um, I, I made uh, a stretch gift for me. It was about 15% of my income at the time, um, but I invested in Gwendolyn and Bridge. And I, um, I'm just, it was a, it was a moment in time and I'm thrilled to see where she is now with all the good work she's doing. Um, and, you know, now more than ever, we need to invest in black and brown women and, you know, been on the front line solving all of our communal issues, not just COVID-19. Uh, so my dream is if we come out of this pandemic long-term and there was, you know, sort of an expansive force of, you know, burgeoning businesses where women had invested in other women, um, that would be amazing. And, you know, what if, and what if Tracy's fund was maxed out and, you know, overwhelmed with resources to fund the people she knows who need resources. That's really, you know, I'm trying to catalyze that. I'm trying to get more people to talk about, you know, what, what influences them around money, what kicks them into abundance, what kicks them into fear, who they model their work by and uh, who teaches them to be brave and bold uh, and really asking the question, how much is enough? Um, I think that's a key question in all of this um, as we move forward and try and all live in a place of healing. You know, if we focus on people, planet, profit, or purpose, and then profit, it would make a huge difference. So honored to be here, um, thrilled to continue the conversation and uh, praying for bold solutions and knowing that they're going to come from women. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for all that. I just, I'd like bringing us back to Texas for a moment. Stephanie was there too, but the 
um, accountability commercials, the idea that a commercial could be that intentional and like focused was a good idea that we should carry forward. <laughs> so thank you. Um, oh, I was going to call on you, Josie, and you vanished. What happened? <laughs> I'm really happy to be a part of this um, discussion. When I think about investing in our future and when I was watching the videos, I think about my role as a funder um, and what values drive us, uh, drive our grant making decisions and what's the impact of investments and our behavior on communities and the environment. Uh, I've started also wondering and asking myself, am I unintentionally doing harm and, and wanting to make sure that our philanthropy and our funding is supporting community-led uh, efforts and not sort of the large sector and infrastructure and parties, as I think Tootie was referring to earlier. Um, you know, my thinking about philanthropy has evolved a lot over the last 10 or 12 years. The uh, traditional uh, charitable giving that my great-grandmother uh, was engaged with when she started the foundation in the 1950s was rooted in very sound values, um, compassion and empathy, and the desire to alleviate suffering. However, I don't think it was about shifting power or dismantling structures or um, that perpetuate uh, the suffering and, and keeping people stuck. Uh, some of my soul searching, I, I think for me, when I think of my heart, you know, what shifted my heart, it was, going to more and more of these um, traditional philanthropic gatherings and observing how decisions were being made um, without the input of members of the community when issues affecting their neighborhood and communities were being discussed. Um, I know the dominant white cultural values that I was raised with and that permeate a lot of uh, funding circles, many funding circles, not all, um, and businesses uh, there's a, a real strong value in avoiding conflict, um, not making anyone uncomfortable, and um, just be polite, you know, and it's uh, not always conducive to growth and hard conversations, which I think is what this time calls for us to have. Um, I'm, I've learned, and this was, you know, referenced in yesterday's, one of yesterday's talks was that each of us, this is an opportunity for each of us with access to um, resources or privilege, uh, you know, and those of us who have a seat at the table to make sure to amplify the voices of people in the community um, who are not in the room and ensure um, that their voices are heard. So one of the things we're trying to do, um, it's been a process and I've certainly don't think of myself as an expert, but one of the things we're trying to do more of is understand people's experiences more holistically, not through issue silos, investing in and trusting the ideas and strategies of black leaders and people of color on the front lines, women of colors, um, and also having historical frame. Well, we don't teach in this country in our history classes how, you know, how we've perpetuated institutional racism, um, the history, particularly regarding the legacy of slavery and imperialism. It's shaped our economy. Um, and I think it's essential to understand that history 
anybody making decisions about how resources are allocated, I think have, has to or should understand that history. Uh, and I'm, you know, so um, something that's been giving me hope recently is, is finding a group of people who are reimagining philanthropy. I recently became involved in a learning uh, a co cooperative of funders, nonprofit leaders, and community members who are talking about completely shifting the paradigm of philanthropy, uh, getting away from this notion that people with resources just inherently know best what other people need. Uh, it's heart-centered. Um, we talk about liberation and transformation and healing. Uh, it's about uh, root targeting root causes and supporting organizations working towards structural change. It's about funding social movements and investing in infrastructure and leadership and capacity building. Most importantly, it's, it's about shifting power from foundations to staff to people most impacted, um, participatory grant making, solidarity economies, um, and diversity, equity, inclusion, which oftentimes is shortened into like just the DEI um, language is, is really just baked into an organization's missions, policies, and practices. Uh, lastly, the focus is on strengths and opportunities within a community rather than its problems and its needs. Uh, so it's really exciting and that really gives me, um, it's a really great group of people. Um, but anyways, I guess when I reflect on COVID-19, I believe that it's magnified the uh, health and other disparities that a lot of people and people of color and members of other historically excluded groups have long known. Um, and I think at a time of crisis, despite our best of intentions, we can revert. It's, e it's possible and easy to revert back to an old way of doing things. Business as usual, I find funders tend to not be really comfortable with risk anyways. I'll speak for myself. I haven't always been comfortable with risk and I've learned to just push through. <laughs> um, but this moment I think provides us all, uh, including the philanthropic community with a, an opportunity to consider a different way forward. And, uh, and I'm just, I'll just add that I'm really happy to be among um, Bridges supporters and grateful for Gwendolyn's leadership in advancing, explicitly advancing equity and justice uh, in Berkshire County and beyond. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Tracy, the earliest riser of us all. <laughs> uh, good morning. <laughs> I was trying not to get too comfortable. I keep moving I stay awake and not curl a little ball, but it's hard not to stay awake with everyone's comments. Um, so uh, my video probably isn't ready because I was really off my game <laughs> for the video. And so they're trying to edit something together. We'll see what comes. And I've been um, kind of meditating on why was I, why couldn't I do this? I'm a Buddhist. I'm an Epu, Episcopalian Buddhist. Um, and I, I was having a hard time this week. And I realized it's because I'm kind of out of my skin because my starting place has always been glass half full. And this week I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling that way and it's, I'm feeling annoyed. And I'm feeling annoyed with my people, meaning my people who are impact investors who wanna do good. I, so 
I keep going back between this theme in my mind, are impact investors a solution or are they the problem? And um, I bring that up because in the time of COVID, we, we are, I'm seeing people very much react really quickly, which we need to do. I mean, we're facing something we've never seen before. And I play in the area of finance and startups and small businesses. And I'm seeing, you know, people having grants and loans come up really quickly. But... Um, as a Buddhist, I always think about, I need to respond versus react. So react is very like in our kind of lizard brain and we're just like doing things without really being mindful and responding is mindfulness practice, right? You sit, you think about it, you don't send that email right away, you, you reread it, all those things that we try to practice. And I tend to be have no internal editor, so I tend to react and just vomit up whatever's on my mind that I think people need. <laughs> so, um, but when I see all this reaction, I start to think, well, what if you would have responded before COVID? What if we would have responded and invested in these companies before COVID? So I've been through now three different, as probably all of you except the very young in you, um, three different downturns, and we know they're coming. We know, and it's been like every 10 years, I was part of the, what they called the dot bomb, when all the tech startups blew up, the Great Recession, and then now. <laughs> and every time there is this reversion to the mean. I'm a former engineer, so I use a lot of numbers, and, and I uh, worked on the space shuttle program, so I think things should be simple. And I always say, if it, it's not rocket science, because I know what rocket science is. So this isn't difficult to figure out. So through these, through these downturns, I see us people always reverting to the mean, going, you know, when do we go back to normal? And we all know now that normal was not normal for the majority of the country. But people are still trying to do that. And they're using terms like, Resilience, and I know everybody out here is using that term, but that term annoys me because women and people of color are always called resilient. Like we always have to bounce back, but what are we bouncing back to? To the nothing we had before? And then, you know, I was on another one of these Zoom many things I'm on and we're all on trying to figure out what, what's next. And I heard an impact investor say, oh, we're going to build back better. Well, back to what are we building back to? You know, the language is not right for this time and where we want to go. So um, to tell you where I sit, I am an investor and I've, I'm raising a fund. And it's really difficult to raise a fund as a woman of color. And how am I at one minute already? <laughs> wow. Keep going. We're okay. Take a little bit more. <laughs> well, anyway, so Keep I'm going. trying to figure out, is there a trickle-down economics that really work? And where it works for me is to invest in women of color fund managers and black and brown fund managers, because the money will trickle down to these small businesses that need to survive. 40 to 50% of black and brown businesses are not coming back. 90% of those PPP loans did not go to brown and black businesses. We have 
we get four, per, we control 4% of all venture capital. That means 400 years before we get to parity in the venture capital space. 98.7% of all wealth is controlled by white men. I mean, that's a little weighted to me toward one group of people. So, so when you look at the capital that's going to women, especially um, women of color in venture capital, women of color, women get 2.7% of venture capital and it stayed the same for the 20 years I've been in venture capital, which is statistically impossible when more of us are coming in. Women of color get less than 1%, brown women get less than 0.1% and black women get less, get 0.0006%. Even though our businesses are more successful than all businesses. I have a ton of stats to tell you, but I'm out of time, but <laughs> we, when we say revert, when we go back to normal, women of color are always just crawling back to the same numbers. In 1999, when I entered venture capital, 10% of venture capitalists were women. We got 3% of the capital. Now, 20 years later, 6 to 8% of the venture capitalists are women. And now I just gave you all the numbers. And it's not better for loans. Loans, we get 4% of all commercial loans. We got to pay them back faster with higher interest rates, even though we are less of a risk. And then philanthropy, <laughs> you know, that ain't going to save us, right? 7% of all philanthropic dollars go to girls and women. Three, less 3% three go to women and girls of color. So where, where, what, what are we going to do? What are we reverting? Where, I don't even know what to say at this point, you know. We know that to change the world, it's through growing women's wealth. The United Nations has said to impact the, the 17 sustainability goals, the top five are impacted when we build women's wealth. So that's what we need to do. The path through build, to changing the world is through women. And I don't, I no longer want to make it through every crisis. I want to grow through these crises. And I want all these companies to grow through this crisis. So you can see I'm all over the place. And this is why there's no video of me because I'm all over the place. But I really enjoy this conversation. Thanks, Gwynwin, for having me. I love thank seeing you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think I'm very happy if you took the cake for being the hardest person to video because I, th I thought I was the person, so thank you. All right, so thank you everyone for presenting. Uh, I'm gonna turn it over to our moderator for this morning. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Ashanti said yes before she knew. <laughs> no. I didn't know. I'm ready. Okay. So I um, have notes and was listening to what everyone was saying and had about seven to 12 questions, all of which shifted once Tracy spoke. Um, so there's that. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Um, so let's, let's start with this. Um, first, thank you all for sharing your experience, uh, your knowledge, your wisdom, your understanding. Um, some of you, even your vulnerability and being able to say, I don't know, right? That's, that's huge. That's, that's a really big piece. I'm going to circle back to that in a moment. Um, but let's, let's start here. Um, everyone on this call has opted in to the beliefs of change. We are in a self-curated society, so you wouldn't be on this call, in this conversation, connecting with us, discussing, wanting to be pushed at times, if you didn't believe that on some level. So let's, let's just all agree, we all believe that something needs to change. On this call, though, 
let's go a little bit deeper. Okay, because we all say we want to have the change. Let's, let's go in a little bit deeper to how. Um, and with that, I actually really appreciated what Tracy said in the first question, are impact investors the solution or the problem? Um, and so I have some, some other thoughts and ways that I want to bring that question into the room. But I want to do a pulse check with everyone who was on the panel. I'm curious about your answer on that. Alexandra. And do you prefer Alex or Alexandra? Alexandra. Thank you. So I'm just going to answer this from my um, personal experience with impact investing. I too, Tracy Echo um, and others, you know, your feelings around the term impact and some of the, the in, some of the terms the industry keeps throwing around. And I can say from my own experience, it all comes down to drilling down to what the purpose is of these impact investors, like behind the scenes. Is it to just um, fill a bucket? you know, which always frustrates me because filling a bucket is just not enough to me. Is it your passion? Do you want equality? Do you want things to be better? So when, for example, when I run across somebody who is interested in, and I don't even call them impact investing, by the way, because I don't even like the word impact. Um, but when they come to me, I'm always asking the question, why? What is this all about? How does this make you tick? I don't want to fill a bucket. I'm not interested in just filling a bucket. Doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think it's really facilitating true change. And I think that from my perspective, that's part of the problem. And in fact, I have a hard time serving people who just want to fill a bucket. I want to know their passion. And I think this is, you know, what I see is I will see people who are impassioned about change and want to make it, but they get very fearful about what that change means because it's not in the status quo of public markets, for example. So like, for example, I'm just going to point out CNO only because I'm familiar. It took me a lot to really reel in these people to overcome their hurdles of fear around something that wasn't really traditional. So I don't necessarily think the money behind some of these people interested in true change is the problem. I think it's when we start throwing in these buckets of, you know, I need to fill this impact bucket because blah. I want to know it's passion. And in a way, I won't, I will tell you, I feel like passion comes from personal experience. And the difficulty is the bridge, bridge between you know, hey, um, you know, look at my skin between what I've had as an opportunity as a woman, which was still hard in a man's world, to someone with darker skin who even has less opportunity. So somehow that bridge between the two, which is the work I know you folks are doing, just needs to come more and more into the, into the in my opinion, into the conversations even more. Because... Um, I, you know, I, I have in the past served people who uh, were interested in impact investing, and I must say that it fell flat for me because they didn't have the same passion I had around creating this, um, you know, there are certain private investments that we did in certain communities that I knew was going to help the system, like putting health food stores in inner cities, for example. So anyway, 
um, I feel like it's really around the passion behind the money, which is far more important. It's my take. Thank you. Josie, Tracy, Judy. Well, I, I don't know if I really explained why I thought they were the problem. Um, the reason is, is it was all those stats over the last 20, 30 years, nothing has changed. Yet impact investors and, and philanthropy has been putting a lot of money to work, but nothing has changed. And I say, are they the problem? Because mainstream and traditional investors think, oh no, the impact investors are gonna do it. So we're not gonna move, even think about moving our money there. But if the impact investors and philanthropy is not doing it, then who's going to create this change? Mm -hmm. And impact investors I'm finding are more risk averse than any other area of impact investing. And they put as many barriers or if more in front of you to, to raising capital. Um, so I don't know, why they exist at the moment. And I call myself an impact investor, right? I mean, so that's why I'm, I'm wondering, are they the problem and how do we get them to step up? And the same, and a lot of it, it's philanthropy and impact investing really aren't that decoupled because it's the endowments from the philanthropy that a lot of time the impact investing is coming from. Yet, I'll go back to my trickle down economics. If most of the people in philanthropy and on the endowment side are white and white men, how is that money going to trickle down to women and people of color? There's not a, we already know the stats of women running nonprofits and women of color running nonprofits. We get like 60% less money than anyone else. So the problem is everywhere. And that's why I, I think, like um, Alexandra is saying, you say a bucket, I'm always saying checking off a box. I, I did this so I feel really good and I'm moving on and I'm not really making an impact. So that's what I was saying, I like our impact investors, the problem. Right, right. Uh, Josie, to, oh, Tootie, you just raise your hand. No, oh, I, I appreciate the, the conversation. Thank you, Tracy, for teeing it up. I think there's this, um, for me, there's some sort of certification process that people should go through that requires them to do uh, implicit bias training, or there's the, you know, you think about the screenings for, um, you know, blind resume orchestra, like how can we do pitches or how do we present people, um, uh, expose them to see that their decisions often are in conflict with what they're trying to do, right? So they may be, um, you know, making investments in one place and not even realizing that they're contradicting it in another area of their work. Um, that's, that's really the, the challenge. I think that I agree totally with what Alex was saying about terminology and um, people trying to fill buckets. I think it does go back to passion and purpose. And if people have clear alignment um, and structure within that, so how they define uh, the true north and if they do agree with you know the world's to-do list right to get rid of poverty and hunger and quality education and everybody has clean water you know if if that's really what's driving people or or is it just um you know to be in the cool club so to speak and that's often um that's often 
people sort of follow the trend without the substance and without removing their bias. And until we can address that, um, yeah, I agree, they would be part of the problem. Hold on, Alexandra, we wanna get Josie in. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I will admit this is an area that we are just kind of coming, um, starting to have conversations about while I have, not unlike a lot of family foundations, I'm, I'm one member, I'm president of the foundation, and yet not probably not surprising to many of you, um, I can have, you can have some impact and influence on grant making, but talking about investments and where things are invested is sort of, um, can be another, is a whole separate, um, separate conversation. So it's something that we're just starting to look at. And it's something that's really important to me to make sure that our investments are uh, congruent with the values by which we make grants. Mm -hmm. So let's get really granular with this right now, because often what, I, I see you, Alexander, um, often what tends to happen is um, we, we, will, we will speak in the what we as a whole need to do versus what we as individuals, like in real time. And so I want to bring it back to the back to you all and and asking this what i'm hearing based on what you all have shared is there's two different areas that we need to address one the power that often the leadership in these nonprofits and small businesses or, or often the leadership doesn't reflect the communities that they serve and so one how do we get more leadership in those spaces. So if so that becomes a if you are leading a foundation or leading an organization or leading a business, if you don't look like the community you serve, how are you sharing power and having co-leadership, co-directors, co-CEOs to be your counterpart and partner with you on what that looks like? Are you giving up power? Or not even giving up because I don't believe in like giving and, and granting. Are you sharing your power in that way? Um, because those blind spots are there for everyone. So that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is what's happening with those foundations and what are we doing with those foundations? Um, where, Tudi, I think you said this, that we are advocating for a human investment model. And by that, that means the people who are most impacted with the lived experiences actually have a say and what their metrics look like and what their needs look like and what progress looks like for them and then the foundations just fund and support that right and so i am i am curious from you all um particularly as as people and this is also rare to have women in power um in these spaces and so i'm also deeply grateful for that differently grateful for that um what is happening like what can we be doing we as us in this room right now to share some of our power with those who have the knowledge and the skill but not necessarily the access to to make those types of decisions in those private rooms um because that requires us giving up you know some of our own whatever around that and then two how from a foundation perspective are we taking a step back and becoming servant leaders to those grantees and in that way being being in service to them to decide what they need with that money. And so I'm curious about how that lands and, and how you all are thinking through making those shifts within your own organizations. And this is for anyone to jump in and share. Well, I, I appreciate the conversation around power. That's clearly, you know, 
when I was asked to do a fellowship on gender lens investing, I asked, I had them rename it to the money and power fellow because I felt like in four people who talk about gender lens investing, they need to start talking about power. And so, and power isn't something a lot of women are comfortable with because they've made assumptions about what power is. So, you know, to Tracy's point about redefining resilience, I'd like us to redefine power, mm -hmm. right? And get more comfortable with the systems of power that, that we're living in, and I would say sometimes under in this current uh, time. Um, and to start talking about power with, and power with is, you know, a framing um, that's been raised. I'm blanking on the author, Mary. It's going to come to me after nine, after 830, it'll come to me. Um, so, um, but power with is really the concept of, yeah. you know, not being a zero sum game, but also that we, um, uh, again, going back to sort of bias and assumptions, you know, that we come to the table and we each have, as I said at the beginning, a money story. And so for people who aren't at the table, I encourage uh, the vulnerable money story to be shared and uh, presented to the people at the table. That would be one way, you know, uh, to take the risk in doing that. Um, because often people at the table, and I think Josie mentioned this, is that, you know, it's been a place of privilege and predominantly white people running foundations haven't been exposed to some of the capacities or lack of access and resources and agency that structural systems have set up for, for folks. So just telling that story is, is, is really important. Um, and a case by case basis then, then gets um, uh, accumulated and then there's sort of momentum behind that. You know, the classic example we can share is, you know, the Time's Up movement. Right, one story catapulted to multiple, uh, and that was a place of vulnerability and a place of risk. And you know, what if we all took the same power around um, wage equity, around sick leave, around caring the caring economy, uh, domestic workers? All of those issues and initiatives need a face and need a story, and need people to take risks. Uh, so, Mary Parker Follett, thank you, Gwendolyn. She pulled it up for me. Mary Parker Follett started the conversation around power with, and <laughs> we can all keep it going. The National Committee on Responsive Philanthropy, if you want to, if you guys want to dive deep and someone, any of you who are part of a foundation or want to influence a foundation, you should just send them a copy of this guide. It's all about how do we build, wield, and share power in philanthropy. And it specifically takes uh, organizations through an assessment of questions about how they, how they sit at a room, how they look at who's speaking, how they look at who's at the head of the table, how they look at grant application process, every, every granular moment where power begins in that shift and exchange of resources um, to hopefully drive the love of humankind. And, you know, if we could do it with a conscious nod towards a new definition of power and power with, it'd be awesome. Judy, can you share that link in the chat that you just you bet. Sure. Uh, could we get thoughts from Josie and Tracy and then uh, Alexandra, if you could circle back to the impact piece and then, you know, bring in what you or your organization would be doing to, to share power. So I'll, I'll respond by saying we don't do enough and um, we need to do more. Uh, we don't have any staff <laughs> uh, at the foundation. It's, it's a run out of a 
uh, law office. Um, I am one central person. And uh, the, what I have been trying to do is I'm trying to be intentional when we do need help. There are tons of consultants who support funders around decision-making and uh, planning and structures in their philanthropy and grant-making. And um, I have found in past years that my knee-jerk reaction was to go to the go-to uh, consultant with a, you know, and as opposed to seeking out uh, somebody uh, who has expertise around inclusion and diversity and equity. So I, I caught myself. And, um, you know, the other thing we've been doing uh, is because we've just started funding more intermediary organizations. There are organizations that do more social justice funding that are grant making organizations like Haymarket and Resist. Uh, and the Lenny's Acom Fund, and I feel like our gifts, we're doing more gifting to those organizations to increase their capacity because we don't, um, right at this moment, we don't have the ability to go out um, and, and fully vet. And I, I feel like I want to support people who are actually doing it and doing it well, rather than reinvent the wheel. Thank you. Um, so I'm also a trustee and treasurer on an, a foundation endowment and um, for a small university. And it took me three years to move us to 100% social impact investing. And that was a battle. And the battle wasn't with the other board members, it was the consultants that were they, we had hired to make the investments for us. And I won't go into it, but it was, epic battle <laughs> where it went to the president of the consulting firm, had to get on a call with me. Um, I literally, he told me why, you know, he was mad because I didn't call him back. And I was like, what are we in high school? I got to call you back and you're going to be mad. You know, it, it was, it was really bad. And then this consulting firm is under a big investment bank. And I then had to get on the phone with the big investment bank to tell them why I, I don't want the consulting firm anymore. Battle that I still have this consulting firm. That I could not, this is how entrenched the power sectors are in money. And I think we're seeing right now how they're trying to hold on to this little bit. I mean, this great bit they have, like the skin of their they're trying to hold on and we, we don't want them to hold on anymore. And that's what we're seeing kind of all this weirdness in, in at least in finance. finance. Um, and then, so then I, I kind of gave, I didn't give up, but I was like, okay, how else can I do what I want to do, which is to move more money to women and women of color, fund managers. So now a friend of our, I think uh, Tootie knows her and Gwendolyn knows her, uh, Kristen Hall, Yep. And then uh, Rachel Robiscotti, I'm trying to make our consulting firm use them as their managers of different products. And so I'm like, okay, if you guys are going to, you know, you're going to control this, I'm going to get around you. Um, so it's now I'm on year five trying to do this. And so the barriers are so strong and the structural barriers are so strong. So I, I'm myself personally, um, I'm trying to break those down everywhere I go. And it's exhausting. And people don't like me, you know, but I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't come here to be liked, you know, I came here to see change. So, um, yeah, so that's, I didn't, I didn't know what your question is at this time. Right? 
<laughs> it, it really just sits with how, how do we actually start sharing power right now? And you, and you did, you, you spoke. And, and Josie's, I can tell in your heart, you are trying. Uh, I wanted to give you this story of how hard it is to do so, even in my position where I have thought I had power and I had desire and it's still a battle. So I wanted to give you props. Like I don't want people to beat themselves up and feel bad about this. Just, uh, I want you to just make do the change. Right, get you know, get rid of feeling bad. Just, just thank you, thank you for that uh, encouragement, <laughs> Alexandra. So it's a battle worth fighting, Tracy. In my opinion, so I, you echoed exactly what I was going to say. You know, we have a stream of consultants, and it's so indoctrinated into our society and into the culture of money to have this resistance and to you know this this is the problem I see. And the other problem that I see is that, you know, we're indoctrinated, especially as women, and I would even think even more so as women of color, that, you know, we don't have the power, we lack the power. And um, one of the things that I personally did was worked with a coach for myself to actually bring myself into my power, which meant that I had to meet my deep anger and rage, which was amazing, because once I actually did that, I stepped into my power. So I feel like there's a lot that falls on us individually, yes. And I feel like we do have power, we just have to tap it. And um, as someone who worked on Wall Street and worked with these consultants and actually got iced out, even outperforming, I got iced out of foundations that I managed money because it was, you know, let's face it, white, male, um, new finance committee who's like, ah, you're out. So it's indoctrinated and, and, it, and the change I feel just keeps coming from within, 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 because now I don't feel like I'm fighting anymore. I actually feel like I'm in completely empowered to make the, like right now I'm in the middle of a, an, an investment where I feel like I'm going to get the money, I'm going to make this happen. And it's something that's amazing and very life altering for many people. So I'm doing it. <laughs> and nothing's stopping me. And it's not like I'm forcing my way through. I'm just, and it, it's like a empowered feeling getting through. So that's, that's the first thing. Like it's just so indoctrinated and somehow we as women and as people need to recognize our own individual power. And you know, I, my, my mother was, grew up in complete poverty, one room, dirt floor, depression baby. And she was the epitome of powering becoming empowered to get out of that so i know that it can happen you know it's just collectively we have to come to that space of consciousness to make it happen so that's my first point about power but i if it's okay i'd just like to go back really quick to and i can't remember who brought it up about impact and why it's not working and i just want to impart one piece of knowledge and one piece of wisdom that i have having been doing this the unfortunate thing is we need a great reset, a great reset of the economy. It is the only way that we are going to knock these horses off, these people off their horses. Um, and unfortunately, the powers that be will not allow for this reset to take hold. So over the 33 years I've been doing this, each recession gets more shallow. And as it gets more shallow, you are able to paint over the companies that are misbehaving. So example, if you remember in the tech crisis, um, um, 
you know, Enron, and I can't remember the one that starts with the T. Um, Enron and WorldCom and a few others just went bankrupt. And those were white men, sorry, who were just misbehaving so poorly. But because they keep painting over, the Fed keeps painting over each one of these recessions, it allows that to continue when in fact that could be the greatest reset for everyone. And I, you know, frankly, I welcome it because it's time for a reset. This is how I feel. Sorry, here I am a capitalist and I have a capital management company, but at the end of the day, I want what's best for the whole, not for the pieces. So that's the problem, is they're not allowing these things to get washed out. Thank so. you. That, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And so it's something that was a, a, another theme that comes up or something that comes up when we are doing this work is, or we may not necessarily speak to, is how um, supremacy comes into play here and how supremacy is actually detrimental to everyone involved, not just people of color, um, not just their experiences, not just the systemic pieces, but it also negatively impacts um, white people as well. And I, I deeply appreciate something that was said earlier um, by Josie when she was like, we are told to be polite, we're told don't make anyone comfortable, and we're told to avoid conflict. Um, and if you are coming from that place and you're coming from that, that mindset, it makes it hard to really dig into the edges of what something looks like. And that's steeped in perfectionism, which is steeped in supremacy, right? You don't, you don't also get, because the moment you make a mistake, you're like, oh, no, I'm a horrible person working in this, you know, organ or this environment that's supposed to be serving and helping people. And so I can understand and can respect and can appreciate the tension within that and what happens there. And so then my question becomes... Um, particularly for the, the white women on the panel, because separately I want to speak to redefining resiliency. Um, what can investors, what can leadership, what can people do to work on their edges or their familiarity or their biases uh, to make sure we don't default back to normal? Like what, what, can, what can happen? What, what can investors do to... to to really start working on that and, and addressing that. Also, y'all need to look in the chat because 2D has dropped all kinds of knowledge on power. Yeah. Like all kinds of power. It's a whole book. So. <laughs> Indeed it is. Um, I, I, I appreciate it is time for a reset. And I think part of, um, you know, being in a position of privilege, whatever that is, you know, based on whatever identity, um, you know, I think, you know, we all get to unlearn white supremacy, right? It's, and that's, that's a journey, whether that happens in the space of um, inside capitalism is, is something that there's a lot of great disruptors trying to, trying to make shifts. And, you know, we're on the, call with one of them, Tracy Gray, you know, Bahisha Robinson is trying to uplift, you know, managers of color, women of color who are doing fund management. There has to be a commitment to, um, and I appreciate investment committees because they are one of them. Investment committees of endowments have to be, have to have a strong leader like Tracy to, to upend the, the system, which is led predominantly by white men who are managing large firms 
who you know want to keep the business the way they like the business and do the investments with their buddies that they do and the partnerships that they have. So at some point, you know, people have to say, you know, let's do a reset, let's do a reframe, let's build our own system. And that takes courage. And, you know, it takes humility. It takes looking around the room and saying, you know, who's missing? Why am I still speaking? Right? Why isn't there another voice in here speaking about this? Why are we having this conversation and not folks we're trying to serve or folks we're trying to impact? That takes you know, I got to be chair at Tides. I've been I've been on the board for nine years. I was chair for three years um, before I stepped in as interim during this transition. And you know, that was my biggest role and goal as a chair is to say who's not in this conversation and how do we bring them into it. And so, you know, that's a dynamic that happens between boards and staff. That's a dynamic that happens between you know vendors, uh, you know, investor uh, consultants and firms and the client. You know. And um, there's, it just has to be a real intentionality. You know, we, we at Tides, we have a whole investment philosophy statement and that requires us to look at our, our vendors and also, you know, who we're doing money management with. And there has to be intentionality there. And I think it starts with leadership. It starts with the leaders saying, we need to make sure we have mandates. We need to make sure we're asking who's speaking. We need to make sure who sits at the head of the table looks different than us and looks different than um than what's been there for centuries <laughs> you know pale male and stale sucks and i'm tired of it and so let's fucking rip it up excuse my french but that's <laughs> that you know and it takes this i did my hairdo after you know the 2016 election because i was like people were thinking i was straight and i was like well come on really you know, so I had to find a way to get back, you know, to being like a, a queer agitator in my f almost 60 years old <laughs> to be like, uh-uh, you ain't getting by me on that shit. You know, don't be making assumptions. I'm, you know, normal. Yeah. Just not, not one of those, not those white girls that you can just like, oh, brush aside. That's a new one. That's a thank you. That's adding that. And that's yeah, Sarah, Sarah Brand, True Wealth Partners. Uh, True Wealth Partners in Austin, Texas. She is uh, another great white ally trying to move money in the health world. Uh, she's the one who did that pale male and stale at one of the conferences I got to be at. And Now yeah. I have to create a version of that for all of our intersecting privileges, like a, an option for each of those, because let's also just throw this in the room. All of us have some form of privilege. Um, in some capacity somewhere so that's definitely one of them and now you have given me homework to think through all the other in intersecting privileges what little three word phrase can i put for all of those so i can be inclusive in my calling out of the privilege <laughs> uh, yes i'm gonna make sure everyone gets gets an opportunity equal opportunity caller out um yeah so uh the same question uh to anyone else on the panel who would like to share and then i would want to give two particular tidbits before we go to our breakthrough sessions. And just again, the question is, what can investors do to work on their own edges or familiarities or biases, which may inherently make them default back to the old norm? Um, so um, I was thinking, I know I have privilege. And one way I try to work on that is um, the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Mm -hmm. So sympathy, when you have privilege, you, you know, you feel sorry for someone, you're patting them on the head, I'll give them some money. That doesn't really help them. 
empathy, we get so entrenched in the problem that we get paralyzed, right? And that's not helpful for us or for them. Compassion is when we can sit back, we understand what people are going through, we understand that we're at the same table with them, but we, we are um, not removed, but we are able to think of solutions to the problem. And that's how I kind of deal with my privilege. I mean, I can sit at home all day and work and not worry about what's happening in Los Angeles. And like, we're now in the epicenter and I had no idea. I'm just at home working, right? I didn't, you know, sunshine, I don't know. Um, and so I try to think about the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And then when um, Alexandra was, I think it was you that was talking about, the, yeah, the reset that we need to happen in capitalism. I agree because, you know, we spent, women and people of color have spent so much time trying to prove that diversity, you get better returns. So we could be capitalists, right? That if you're going to invest with, in diversity, you're going to have better returns, but they don't listen to that. And that shows that there's not an unconscious bias. Like I have, I'm unconscious, I can't help it. There is just bias and they know it. And when I talk about the number, the returns that you get with um, women and people of color. So a lot of women, a lot of times we don't, we don't get the capital because we don't have the same track record because we're not in the system that creates the track record. So there's like this, this thing, this catch 22. But we know that first time managers outperform a legacy managers. So for, for the last 13 years, except for one year, first time managers have outperformed legacy managers, but that doesn't matter to them. And then we know in private equity and venture capital, diverse firms have outperformed 62.5% of the time. And that doesn't matter to them, right? So I agree, there's gotta be a reset by, and it might have to happen in, it might have to happen by the privilege of us who are uh, underrepresented. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I, you know, I hate to call out some of my black and brown brothers. They forget about women and women of color because some of them want to be at that table with those white dudes. Right. And then sometimes I have to call out my white sisters because they'll say no more all male panels, but it'll be all white men and women so i'm like where's the diversity it's still all white people mm -hmm. so you know there's so i think i want to end on i don't know who said this but they said the greatest benefactors of the civil rights movement were white women because people are checking off their diversity box because they've got a white woman there but i'm asking white women to turn around and say wait now that i'm here does that mean it's over you know mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of things I was thinking about when you asked the question. Thank you. Thank you for that. And yes, calling out everyone's own separate internalized racism issue that puts it, again, how supremacy impacts everyone. We assume there's this one model that we all strive, that we should be striving for and inadvertently or intentionally harm our own to do that when we could all actually be supporting each other as a collective. So thank you for bringing that into the room. Alexandra and then Josie. So, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I, I'm echoing, I'm shaking my head with Tracy and I, I, 
I have to say that I agree. I've been on many boards and I'm the token female white, you know, woman on the board. And uh, to the point where I now don't accept being on boards um, for a number of reasons, because I tend to not sit quietly. I, I have an opinion <laughs> and it's not always, you know, met with a lot of, um, it's met with a lot of resistance. But to your question around like, um, with how do we shift and change the investors? Um, to be honest with you, this has been a very big battle for me where I sit. So if I had an answer, I would provide it. I don't, you know, what I see and what I deal with is a lot of fear. So Tracy, to your point, I agree. The emerging managers do exceptionally well. And a lot of these businesses, you know, these uh, micro businesses do exceptionally well, exceptionally well. Um, but to really turn the key and actually get people to move past fear is a very difficult one from my perspective. So if somebody gets an answer someday, please, please, please get in touch with me because I'd like to find a way to become more persuasive and to, you know, ensure these people that these moves are appropriate and, and worthwhile. That will be part of our breakthrough session. Please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josie? Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that there's a ton of uh, conscious and unconscious bias and supremacy culture that's sort of baked into philanthropy. Um, you know, per, you know, it plays out with evaluations and proposals and language, evaluating um, at language, um, and uh, you know, for a lot of at least I can speak just for myself as a white funder, cultural values being raised as a member of a privileged white family is, has had, I've had to just completely re-examine and just toss a lot of them out, out the window. Um, because we value, you know, we, we tend to evaluate in philanthropy what, we evaluate what we value, we, we measure what we value. And communities value uh, different things and don't share the same uh, values. Uh, we've just specifically, we've, we've just, and again, when I talk about our grant making, we, what we do in Berkshire County, what we do in Boston, we do different pockets and there's different influences. Some, um, some, of, some of it's more focused regionally, but we're going in this direction, which is we've stopped funding. I mean, some of these large, predominantly white male run institutions that have programs for funders who want to fund a social justice project. Um, you know, funding is, is something that um, we used to fund and we no longer fund. Uh, funding, you know, we're trying to get away from dealing with middlemen and d development officers. Um, there's a lot of gatekeepers. Uh, so just trying to, you know, get away from our typical or traditional valuing of what looks good on the outside, the glossy brochures that are so rampant in philanthropy, and trying to develop more authentic, trusting relationships um, with the leadership of these nonprofits and these grassroots organizations. And it's, it's challenging because of the power dynamic, and it's, um, it's just some of the things we're working on. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, so this is not an easy topic to discuss because it is so layered and it is so complex. Um, and so that's what makes, like even in hearing these conversations today out of all the, the sessions we've done thus far, this one holds the most tension because it's like, I don't know what to do and I don't 
necessarily, let's just call it what it is. Like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I'm aware there's some pieces I don't know and not really sure how to make, like, this is hard. And this is the stuff we have to sit with and grapple with and get the answers to so we don't go back to whatever that was before. And so as we get ready to go, so I thank you all for sitting with that, that difficulty and, and the vulnerability around it and the honesty. It, I don't take lightly how difficult this particular conversation is. And for everyone who's listening, I see you still being like, oof, that's, uh, <laughs> oof, wow. Like, I see it, I feel you, I understand as a moderator, I'm feeling it all as well. Um, I was ready to go into the breakthrough sessions and we're calling them breakthrough, not breakout, because something's gonna shift. Um, I want you all to come to it or come into that conversation with, with this, this perspective, this lens. I spoke in another, um, group around allies versus accomplices. And in this time, we are going to need accomplices. And so let me explain what the difference is. Um, a lot of times we have used the word allyship and, and sometimes that word can get co-opted or overused. And understanding there needs to be a distinction between the, the allyship, which is, um, what example I use? Like, so an ally will invite you into their home. You can sit at their table. You can eat their food. You can watch their TV. And if someone, and so they are inviting you into the space, right? You, you are here, not just bringing, not just letting you be near it, but you're actually at the table. And, and so we want you at the table. But then as soon as someone says something offensive or does something offensive, they don't then step in and, and stab off that, that offensive comment or engage that person that was offensive versus having you having to do it, right? Because whatever our points of privilege and intersection, and intersection are, we should be that person. Because a person who is the target, I guarantee you is exhausted by that that's coming towards them. And so an ally will invite you into the table, but when stuff, heat starts coming to you just for being in the space, they don't block and protect with their privilege. They don't give up their privilege in order to be a protection. An accomplice gives up their their privilege. And so an accomplice will say, so what you will not do in this space, in this house, in my house, in my home, is treat this person as X. And here's why, and here's what you should work on. And if you cannot adhere to these things, we won't be interacting with each other anymore, right? And that happens in all of our, and I have to reiterate that, that happens in all of our multiple points of privilege. And so what we need to move, dial to really go to where we know we can be, is moving from ally to accomplice behavior. And a lot of people, a lot of you all are already accomplices and didn't even realize you were being an accomplice. But we wanna make sure we make that distinction. There's nothing wrong with being an ally because we need to get in the room. And as allies grow and build those muscles, they graduate and evolve into accomplices. And so as we get into uh, our breakthrough sessions, I would love for you all to discuss and reckon with the questions that are coming up and where are you an ally? And where are you an accomplice? And what can you be doing to, to make sure you are being an accomplice in multiple areas? And it's also okay in this to say, I'm not comfortable to do, I'm not comfortable doing that yet. Cause that's also real. Cause we don't get a chance to be like, I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not comfortable. I know I need to, and I'm not yet ready because that's real. And until we can be honest with each other, who we say we're all on the same page with, we'll still be playing this game. And so be, I invite you to be honest in these conversations. I can do it here and I'm not comfortable doing it here and I don't know when I'm going to be. And that is all right. And that is okay to call out and acknowledge and say, because you are in a space with people to be like, I hear that. Cause we all have one or two. And so thank you for sitting with the, um, the tension of this particular session. Um, this, this one specifically is going to be what helps takes us to the next, to the next level and to let us go back. So Gwendolyn, back to you.
All right, thank you. Thank you, Ashanti. I'm just gonna jump right in with some ground rules. I love that Tudi said, why am I talking? That's one of the ones Stephanie and I use in trainings lately, is check if when you share in this breakthrough, if you're defensive and needing to tell everybody what you do, or if you're really probing to push yourself deeper. So really think about that. And then just, you have 15 minutes and then we're trying to end on time. So another tool is Elmo, which is enough, let's move on. So some voices we've heard a lot, or there are some extra extroverts that will be in your group. Um, those folks might need to sit back to let the other folks that have been quiet and observing really speak up. So just think about that and the time that you have and self-manage yourselves. Um, these are, as Ashanti said, we call these breakthrough sessions because it's a time where you can get a little more intimate, a little more vulnerable and push. And the objective is to come out with some actionable items, right? And remember, we're doing this think tank for the greater good. Like this will be accessible to other people. So just roll up your sleeves. All right, and then you're gonna go away for 15 minutes. I'm gonna click this button for Zoom and it's gonna tell you you have two minutes. Don't get nervous and click because it'll dump you out of your meeting, it's been happening. So <laughs> you're gonna get a two minute warning and it looks like you're supposed to say, okay, and be a good person and come back, but it's a two minute warning. Zoom will actually dump you back in when the two minutes is up, okay? Does that sound good? Everyone's clear? Great, we have two groups and dig in. As we get ready to go into each group, um, sharing back, you will each have a minute and a half to share or have a representative share what you all discussed in your group uh, and understand that this is not, this session is not the end of this. This is actually the launch pad for what this working group will look like. So congratulations, welcome. You're in a working group about philanthropy. Ha ha, yay. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, y'all. <laughs> More work. Love ya. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm so serious. <laughs> My round people think I'm kidding. I'm not. Um, so we're going to start with group one. Uh, if you can have whoever your representative was, uh, could you have about, again, a minute and a half to share um, what you discussed and what came up for you and possibly even the how, the how to do this. So group one, who... So I'm our designated report back person. Um, hi, y'all. So um, we talked about a lot, and I'm going to try to squeeze it all in. Um, we kind of we talked about sort of like the requirement of upending structures and the role of decision makers within that, um, and sort of probing deeper and thinking about kind of that like ally accomplice model, um, kind of really forcing to like think about how we are actors within that framework. Um, and something that sort of that Josie had shared around kind of like working through um, what can feel like maybe tension or being stuck in how to move forward is this idea of just always pick like one thing, always be working on one thing, even if it feels small, but to not, um, not kind of be rooted in waiting for someone else um, to follow cues, but to have your own priorities that you're moving through. Um, and I guess we, we also kind of maybe a theme was around this, um, I guess maybe false dichotomy between institutional and individual um, power. Uh, and so like a lot of the conversations we've had have been about philanthropy and institutional change, but um, we were kind of challenging to see ourselves as like individuals with power within that. 
um, whether that's like in our professional world or just in our own individual households, um, the decisions that we're making with our resources and money and finances um, and something that Tracy shared that I thought was really helpful. Um, we had been kind of talking about that like compassion and solidarity framework versus like a more charity-based model. Um, and something that Tracy shared was like trying to see um, money and skills and resources that we might have as individuals as tools to accomplish like values that we have as opposed to things to hold on to. I don't know what my time is, but that felt like oh, maybe a minute and a half. It was good. Forget the time. Okay. That was great. Thank you. Um, I can't great. help but chime in if you don't mind, because Danye yeah. said something I really loved. And she said that she feels she's realized if she goes into something with half a heart, she's always disappointed that she didn't get the full results she had hoped for. So I thought that was really worth sharing with everybody. I loved that sentiment. Yeah, and actually, I was going to say another thing that Donnie said at the beginning, right, was just like, I've just graduated, and now I'm entering, like, I'm entering into these conversations, and um, in some ways, I actually thought that was one of, like, the most helpful frames and questions, because it was a little bit of a reset to, like, we are all allowed to ask these questions, um, and we are all allowed to be questioning the structures around us, and actually should be, um, so I really appreciated that as kind of, like, the starting off point for our conversation this. Thank you. All right, group two. Um, we talked about um, how there's a compassion crisis that, um, that that feels like the element that can really change the all the metrics that we're looking at. Um, we sort of raised the question of like, how do we put pressure on larger systems in order to uproot them? And then I, th I felt like there was like kind of a realization that COVID itself is the disruptor to that. Um, it's not so much uprooting these systems because they've been uprooted. It's preventing them from rerouting. Um, and that compassion and connectivity uh, human to human seems like the way to do that. Um, you know, the COVID is almost an ally in that um, way that it, it is disrupting the connections between certainty and confidence and known knowns and Familiar, familiar power structures and how all that connects to finance and the understanding of like what what is a good return and what is a worthy investment um, and that it falls to white women to kind of model how to step from ally to accomplice. Um, the, we talked about, oh my God, we talked about so many things. Um, how hard it is to raise consciousness. Um, Alexander was talking about like heart-centered you know, heart connectivity, working on the individual level. And, and we talked about how hard it is to, to raise the consciousness in that way without triggering um, a sort of benevolent philanthropy model, um, which is a really juicy one. Cause a lot of, you know, if it's a bucket of money, a lot of money pours out of that bucket. But what we really need to do is very consciously not um, like approach that historical re-education, Huff brought that up, like where, where your wealth if you're talking one-to-one, -one, where did your wealth come from? Especially in an area like the Berkshires where we don't, we're not as confronted with the disparity as you might be living in a, a different kind of setting. Educating the people with wealth on where their money came from and the, um, the disparities that are evident in that. And, and to do that without triggering that, um, oh, well then I'll you know, benevolently endow this charitable thing, which is completely separate from my sense of personal justice in the world being a just, compassionate place. 
Um, that's about a third of what we talked about, but I'm sure that the dinger is about to ding. So, <laughs> um, if, and if anyone else in the group feels I missed something, please just pipe up. Everyone's good. All well, high, I, d I, d I do like how um, the gentleman said at the end about how the truth of our history, traces of the trade was here and it was in North Adams. And we found out that this, the Massachusetts labor, I mean, Massachusetts uh, um, liberal arts, that was off the backs of slaves and also the library that was built, the money, the investment, the money came up North from those slaves in the South. And if we could connect that, that, that truthful history, maybe some of the stuff would shift. But it's hidden. No one wants to talk about that. He says these beautiful estates in Berkshire County, they're beautiful to look at, but it was through the investments of those black slaves in the South. That's how those buildings got built. Now they're libraries and schools and churches. So if we could connect it, it would be great. Absolutely. Ooh, okay. So uh, this is why I have breakthrough sessions because everyone can give their input about all the things. Um, so thank you all. Again, I, this is not an easy topic. It's, there's so many layers and levels in our own internalized isms and phobias that we have to like dismantle and check when we come into these conversations. And so I thank you all for showing up as you did. And I would leave you with the question of how. There was a lot of talk about what needs to happen and how we need to do the things. Action steps, like how, how do we do this next? And that's your next meeting at your working group. You all get to decide the date and time. <laughs> uh, but I will pass it over to Gwendolyn now. Yeah, I, I just want to honor time. And, I, and again, yeah, undoing capitalism, which is the foundation of our country, and then how that's not inextricable from patriarchy and race is really a challenging topic to tackle in two hours on a Saturday morning. Um, but <laughs> we're here, right? And I just, I don't know who said it, but I just bristled at, is someone tell me how, when there's a model, we are the people that's gonna make the model. There's no model out there, right? And we're the ones that have to be willing to give up our space. And it is giving it up. I mean, you know, sharing, giving it up, but we have to step aside and let the voices be and let the new ways be. And each of us know where our point is, where we are gut titans, and that's not what we're comfortable, right? Uh-oh, if I make this person upset, then I've got no donors, right? Then I've got no investments coming in. I have to play the game to get to here. I have no clients, and there's no bridge. Like, all of us feel that, right? So we, we have to be courageous in those moments, and I think the only answer is courageous authenticity. Like all of us lead from that space all the time, not just in the comfortable spaces where the, the code is okay and approved, but in all spaces that we're in. So I just, I think, again, my aspiration is what happened today, that all these people that I respect and admire that lead in this space are on this call. You know, and you, we need to push each other and push each other in what we know and push the other one in what they don't know yet, what the blind spots and the deaf spots where they are, right? So I just, I'm grateful that you all leaned in. I'm grateful that you're all here. And I really hope we stay connected because I, I like how Janet framed it, that COVID-19 is giving us an opportunity. Like we have to lean into it. What we were doing before did not serve us, right? And we keep saying it, but we have to actually live like we mean it. So that's what I have to say. And thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, all of this. Thank you. Give a round of applause to Gwendolyn because this is so hard. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. And we now, just to leave, your ticket out is one word about how you're leaving this meeting. One word. <laughs>
I feel tired. <laughs> Good. We did our work. Good. We did some work today. All right, uh, Sam. Be the change. And Joseph, thank you. Thank you. I'm teasing you. No. Um, accountable. All right. All right. So you guys have been quiet, and maybe you talked in the um, breakout breakthroughs, but I hadn't heard your voices. So now we're going to go around. Um, Janet. Irritated. <laughs> Danya. Familio. Familia. Yeah. Stephanie. Come back. Come back? Yep. <laughs> Judy. But agitated. That's Ooh. what I meant. That's agitated. Yeah. Being an agitator is really important, right? In our history, we need agitators. Um, Lily? Um, I'll go with hopeful. All right. Tracy? Awake. <laughs> uh, Donna? Challenged. All right. Tracy Johnson? <laughs> Uncomfortable. We did our work. We did our work. This is yeah. a lot of course, Stacey. <laughs> um, I think I'm going with um, defiant. It could just be a personal mood today, but um, thinking of our conversation uh, last night in the compassion fatigue, how much great work is happening in the community in spite of some of the systems and larger organizations. Yeah, thank you. Joseph. Wendell, and, Wendell oh. and my word is, is squeezed. Ooh, squeezed. Ooh. Making lemonade, Josie. Is recommitted a word? Yeah. Recommit. Recommit. <laughs> All right. And I feel um, well, I'm going to do what Sam did, but in the right place. Right. Lots of hyphens. <laughs> Ashanti. Uh, I'm going to echo Huff and just go with spit. <laughs> 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 we did a good job. Judy, what's our power move to go? We need a power move. Okay, seriously, you, you want to, can people stand up? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I need to stand up and sit down for two hours. Stand up. Stand okay. up. <laughs> yeah. right. We're going to see certain parts of ourselves, but yes. That's okay. So, do your, so this is all about like your shoulders. So, you got to get your shoulder blades. So, uh, hands in like a V and say, victorious. 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 And then Victoria. a T, get your shoulders rolling. Tenacious. Tenacious. Tenacious with the T. And then go down, make like a W and say wondrous. 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 Feel your shoulder blades, shake them out again. And then hold your thighs, reach as far down in your thighs as you can and say love. Love. Oh, like you're <laughs> That's all. This is our beloved embodied community. We're going to do it. Oh, good. There we go. All right. Judy. Looking forward to being in Massachusetts soon. Hopefully getting to be in the Berkshires. Yeah. We'll Thanks soon. all. Thanks, Love to Thanks all. everybody. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, everybody. Maybe we'll see some. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. 
We want to thank the Bridge Sustaining Donors and organizational members, as well as our New Pathways sponsors, the Pumpkin Foundation, the Moonlight Mile Fund, Berkshire COVID Response from the Berkshire United Way and Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, MCLA, and the Crane Foundation. Be well, do as much good work as you possibly can, and stay safe out there. This is our great opportunity, I think, to create great change.